KRWN, HD3, Bremerton, Seattle. And on TuneIn.com, Hing.fm, and Upsnap Mobile. Contact Talk Radio. Welcome to New Consciousness Review. New Consciousness Review is all about the books and films behind the global shift in consciousness. On the NCR Radio Show, your host, Miriam Knight, interviews some of the most passionate and exciting authors and filmmakers she can find among the thousands of spiritual and progressive titles NCR covers each year on ncreview.com, an online showcase of conscious media. Miriam's guests are the thought leaders of the conscious awakening. They offer fresh perspectives on topics ranging from ancient wisdom to science and metaphysics, and from body-mind health to service and community. Be prepared to be challenged and enjoy the ride. Now, here is your host, Miriam Knight. Hi, everybody, and welcome to New Consciousness Review. I'm Miriam Knight, and our guest today is Paul Hellyer, one of Canada's best-known and probably most controversial politicians. He was first elected in 1949, and he became the youngest cabinet minister in Saint-Laurent's government, and subsequently served as Minister of Defense under Lester Pearson and as Deputy Prime Minister under Pierre Elliott Trudeau. He resigned from the Trudeau cabinet over a question of principle related to housing, and although Hellyer is best known for the unification of the Canadian Armed Forces and for his 1968 chairmanship of the Task Force on Housing and Urban Development, he has maintained a lifelong interest in macroeconomics. Through the years as a journalist and political commentator, he has continued to fight for economic reforms and has written several books on the subject. A man of many interests, Hellyer's ideas are not classroom abstractions. He was born and raised on a farm, and his business experience includes manufacturing, retailing, construction, land development, tourism, and publishing. He has also been active in community affairs, including the arts. His multifaceted career, in addition to a near lifetime in politics, gives Hellyer a rare perspective on what has gone wrong with world economies. In recent years, he has become interested in the extraterrestrial presence and their superior technology that we have been emulating. In September 2005, he became the first person of cabinet rank in the G8 group of countries to state unequivocally, UFOs are as real as the airplanes flying overhead. Well, buckle your seatbelts. It is going to be an interesting show. So, Paul Hellyer, it is an honor to welcome you to the show. It's a delight to be with you. Now, you made the rather provocative statement that the world financial system is one gargantuan Ponzi scheme. I would like to explore that step by step, including how it started, who is benefiting, and what is the prognosis for the rest of us. Well, it's one of the most uh, interesting subjects in the world and one of the least understood. I would guess that only about maybe one in a hundred of the people who listen to your show would understand really what money is, where it comes from, who manufactures it, and uh, all of the intricacies that are relevant to uh, what is at the present time the most urgent uh, problem in the whole 
in the whole world system that I know of. I claim that um, global warming is the most important in the sense that if we don't do something about that and do it quickly, the world is going to uh, change irrevocably. So that is number one in in priority as far as importance is concerned. But the financial system is the most urgent because if we don't change the financial system, we won't be in a position to afford to change the heating system, the energy system from fossil fuels to clean energy fast enough to save the world from overheating. So what I was referring to and I called the international financial system of Ponzi scheme is basically that a very privileged group of people, the bankers of the world, are able to lend the same money to several different people and collect interest on it from each one at the same time. Now, if you or I tried to do that, we'd go to jail because it would be (laughs) breaking the law. But somehow, over two and a half centuries, um, a very small elite group of people have managed to convince kings, queens, emperors, and, uh, and presidents and prime ministers and legislatures to legalize what none of the rest of us are able to do and are allowed to do. And this, of course, uh, has a long, long history, and you can go way back. But I sort of start the story at the time of the of the uh, charter of the Bank of England in the in the 1600s. Yeah, 1690, <laughs> something like that. Whoa, way back, eh? And King William was waging a war on the continent. He ran out of money, so um, somebody said, "Well, why don't you start a bank?" That sounded like a good idea. So he got some rich friends in London, England, to put up a million two hundred thousand pounds in gold and silver and subscribe it to the bank. And then they lent all of that money to him at 8%, which incidentally is a pretty high interest rate for a government guaranteed loan. (laughs) But then to show his gratitude, this has become typical of the history of the world since then, To show his gratitude, he said, now you can print, P-R-I-N-T, print, a million two hundred thousand pounds in banknotes and lend them to your friends at high interest rates. So that's what the bank did. So in effect, they were lending their capital twice, once to the king, the government at 8%, and once to their customers, their friends at high interest rates. So we call that leverage two to one, and they were lending the same money twice and collecting interest from both at the same time. Well, over the years, that ratio has become much more generous due to the avarice, I guess, of the bankers and the collusion, cooperation, whatever you want to call it, of sometimes one and sometimes the other and sometimes both of the politicians, that ratio of two to one has increased dramatically. In the early years of the uh, 20th century, in the United States, for example, 
federally chartered uh, banks had to have a gold reserve of 25%, actually have the gold stashed in their vaults uh, as a deposit against uh, their depositors' uh, money. Like Fort Knox. Yeah, something like that. And uh, so they were allowed, in effect, to lend the same money four times. In Canada, when I was young, the banks had to have a cash reserve of 8%. So they were, in effect, allowed to lend the same money 12 and a half times. Well, before the recent meltdown in New York, and uh, which spread all over the world and has devastated the whole world economic system, uh, New York banks were... Um, were lending the same money to 20 or more different people at the same time, including governments, and collecting money from each one. Now, this, this, is, this is fraud. This is total fraud, because you couldn't do this in any other field. If you were a farmer and you had a field and you wanted to lend it to, to somebody, rent it to somebody for pasture, you couldn't rent it to 20 other farmers and collect rent from each one. You'd go to jail. But somehow the bankers managed to bamboozle the politicians and the legislators and get the, the legal right to do that. And in Canada, for example, it's the law. In 1991, our government changed the law from what had been a cash reserve system to a capital adequacy system, which means so much capital they have to keep rather than actual cash in their vaults. And uh, they were allowed to have assets equal to 20 times that capital. In other words, they could lend the same money, same capital, to 20 different people or organizations at the same time and collect interest from every single one of them. Oh, that's nice work if you can get it. You better believe it. You can get it if you're a bank. (laughs) And you can't if you're not. But to say it's highway robbery is... uh, is just sort of a, a misnomer because highway robbers wind up usually in jail and spend a lot of time for it, whereas the banksters, as we call them, <clears throat> rob us all the time and have for two and a half centuries or more. <clears throat> and all they get is, uh, the, you know, they get uh, rewards and, uh, and uh, all sorts of honors for giving away the odd dollar now and then. While so so this, cap- this capital adequacy... Uh, that you mentioned, is that what was, or the lack thereof, is that what was behind um, the runs on the bank uh, that we've experienced in the past, for example, the big savings and loan debacle? Well, the, the capital adequacy, adequacy um, was the, is the, the present system, largely. Mm-hmm. The, the um, American banks today have very, very small cash reserves. They carry very little cash. The Canadian banks have virtually none. By law, they don't have to have. They adopted a, an idea of Milton Friedman's that was one of the silliest ideas that I can think of, of saying uh, that banks don't have to have cash in their vaults, except enough uh, for us if we go in and want some for the weekend to take on a, on a holiday or excursion or something like that. And they know they only need just a very small amount because not everybody asks uh, for their money at the same time. And that's the reason, of course, that the banks aren't collapsing all the time. We just, a few of us are ask for cash, but never enough 
so that the banks can dig it up and uh, and just keep on fooling everybody else to think that their money is there if they went for it, because it isn't. It just doesn't exist. It's virtual money. It In effect, money today is nothing but a, a computer entry. That's all it was. Yeah, I thought that was fascinating in your book. You, you, you gave the example of I want to buy a car, then I go to the bank, and if I have the right collateral, he just makes an entry into my account. It's an accounting entry, and poof, he's created money. Absolutely, right out of thin air. And seconds earlier, that money did not exist. And that is really the Ponzi. And I explain in the book the way the banks make their money, of course, is that if you decided uh, to uh, leave the money that you borrowed for the car uh, for a few months because you thought maybe the new models would uh, be better or uh, whatever, uh, they would pay you virtually no interest on it. Whereas the note that you had to sign for the bank in order to get the loan bears a much higher interest rate. And it's the difference between what they charge you, which could be 3 4 5 or 6% or more, depending on you know when it is, and the nothing or the 8 to 1% that they would give you on your bank account if you leave it there, the money. Um, that's what they call the spread. Mm-hmm. That is how they make the money. Consequently, they have an incentive to create as much money as they can, to make as many loans as they can. Because the more loans they make, the more interest is paid to them, the more the spread and the greater the profits. And it's really just a great big giant money-making machine. Where they get in trouble, of course, is like they did in 2007 and 2008, when somebody deliberately crashes the system, then the value of assets goes down. So the value of mortgages and of stocks goes down. And all it has to do is go down 5%, and the banks are technically broke, all of them. And most of the New York banks have been technically broke several times in the last 20 or 30 years, and or 40 years, uh, certainly. And uh, each time they've had to be bailed out by one means or another. And always, unfortunately, I have to say, at taxpayers' expense. So... Uh, it's really a rotten system, and, and unfortunately, it's subject to these ups and downs, the, the business cycle, they call it. And most economists just sort of take that as, uh, as part of the system. It really isn't. And that's the reason I went into politics in the first place, you know, decades ago. Because um, as a child of the Depression... I figured out that uh, recessions and depressions were unnecessary. And my economics professors uh, couldn't tell me why, and, uh, and they just you know, said, read your economic history. There have always been recessions and depressions, so presumably by extension, they're going to keep on happening. But they could never explain why they had to happen. And in fact, the, the reason they didn't explain it was because they didn't know the reasons. And the problem is, 60 years later, they still don't. I noticed that you said there have been 25 recessions and depressions in the last 110 years. Right. That's uh, one every four or five years. Right. And, the, and they have such devastating results. I remember the recession of 1980-81 very well. Actually, it benefited me because I was looking for a house in Toronto 
and I was able to buy a condo at cost right on the waterfront. Of, and, you know, three late years later, it would have been out of my range. But what happened to most people, hundreds of thousands of people, they lost their jobs, they lost their houses, because interest rates went up to 18% in the United States and 22% in Canada, and uh, they lost their businesses. And, of course, the implication for governments is that when all those people are unemployed, they have to count on government benefits. They don't pay taxes. And the businesses that went broke... They're not making profits. They're not paying taxes. So governments go into deficit, and then those deficits are rolled over into uh, into debt, and the debt just keeps increasing, multiplying exponentially. And the poor taxpayers who are working have to pick up the cost of paying that debt and the interest on it, both the principal and interest as they go along. So we have basically an unstable and and really unsustainable worldwide system where, unfortunately, now, all money is created as debt. Tell us about the formation of the Federal Reserve and what that has meant in practice. Well, it was... Uh, it was a, a heist. The New York bankers didn't like uh, didn't like competition, so they decided that it would be better to uh, to take over the whole system and divide up the pie than to compete with each other for uh, for business. So they had a secret meeting on Jekyll Island, and uh, this was very hush hush, of course. And it was some months after the Federal Reserve legislation was passed before anybody admitted that it had ever taken place. And they drafted legislation which, in effect, transferred from the American people the sovereign right to create their own money, as Abraham Lincoln had, and gave that right to private bankers because the Federal Reserve System was not federal and it was not reserve. It was just a group of privately owned Federal Reserve banks taking control of the most important economic tool in the economic arsenal of, of any country. and uh, Which is the right to print money. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And, of course, I think it was called the Aldrich Bill in the first place, and uh, they didn't like that. I think he was a senator, if I recall. And so they rewrote it and called it something that sounded a little less uh, provocative and put it through just before Christmas. And I have said that I think the Congress uh, men and women were, were uh, probably thinking more of sugar plum fairies than they were of what they were putting through Congress. And about the only congressman who really nailed it was... Uh, uh, Lincoln, not Lincoln, but Lindbergh, Charles Lindbergh uh, Sr., who said exactly what it was what it was all about, that this group of bankers were taking over control of the U.S. right to create money and credit. And uh, how much does it cost the American people? Since uh, the numbers are in the high trillions of dollars. In other words, probably your entire federal debt 
today, which is what, oh, 14 trillion, something like that? Uh, none of it was necessary, not a single cent. There was never any need for the American governments and the American people to borrow from the private banks when they ran a deficit. They could have printed enough money to meet the deficit, never gone in debt, not have any debt today, and you would have lower taxes, you wouldn't have half the unemployment that you have. You wouldn't have half of the, well, you wouldn't have any of the bickering and silliness that's been going on in Congress recently. And to let this happen was bad enough. But then, as I have said uh, on more than one occasion, right after it was passed, both the president and the leader of the opposition, who helped put it through, realized that it was one of the worst mistakes they had ever made in their political careers. That was Woodrow Wilson and William Jennings Bryan. Exactly. Those are the people. And they both recognized that this was a dreadful mistake. Well, that was 99 years ago. So I think the American people have the right to say, well, what has Congress been doing, been doing for the last 99 years? If they recognized 99 years ago there was a dreadful mistake, why haven't they changed it? Mm -hmm. I think that that's the number one question that every American should be putting to their congressperson today, because I don't think they're earning their money if they don't change the system and make it work for the benefit of all Americans and not just for a handful of super rich people who have more money than they know what to do with, and they're just playing Monopoly with the money supply of the world. I want to read a quote that you have in your book by Thomas Jefferson that absolutely floored me with its prescience. He said, I believe that banking institutions are more dangerous to our liberties than standing armies. If the American people ever allow private banks to control the issue of their currency, then first by inflation and then by deflation, the banks and corporations that will grow up around the banks will deprive the people of all property until their children wake up homeless on the continent their fathers conquered. Wouldn't you say that was prophecy? I, I just found that mind-boggling. It was, it was just looking into the future and seeing what was going to happen, and it has happened. All the people that are losing their houses now and the people that are losing their jobs and their properties um, and the bankers taking it all over. So who are the movers and shakers on the world financial scene that, that perpetuate this system? Well, it's, it's difficult to put a pin on that. People usually say the 100 most wealthy families in the world control it, and I wouldn't quarrel very much with that. If you're speaking of the banking system uh, specifically in the international banking cartel, the, uh, for many years, in fact, for, uh, for generations, the Rothschild family and their allies in Europe were primarily responsible for creating what Ellen uh, Hodgson Brown has called the web of debt. Well, then, after World War II, um, it appears that uh, the Rockefeller family were put in charge of the web, and so they're the principal 
bandmasters or webmasters, if you want to put it that way. And they, of course, don't do it all by themselves, but they and their allies, the, the cabal or the people they work with as a group, are the ones who really control the world, certainly control the United States, and really have taken over the democratic rights of the people of the United States. I, I don't really think we can call ourselves democracies when the central bankers in our countries tell us what we can do and what we can't do. I've, I've had this argument with, uh, with many people, including our own central banker uh, recently. In three cases, I can remember in Canada, opposition parties have promised, if elected, to provide jobs, jobs, jobs. Well, partly on the basis of that promise, they got elected. Well, then what happened? The Department of Finance, which is comparable to your Treasury Department in the United States, and the Bank of Canada, in your case the Fed, just says you can promise, in effect, anything you like. But we're running the show, and we're not going to do what you tell us to. <laughs> we're going to do what we want to do. And what is, what is in the best interest of our banking members, not of your poor tax-paying electors. It reminds me of that British comedy, Yes, Minister, where the civil servants do whatever they want and just keep the ministers kind of asleep and on the side. Oh, you've got it summed up so beautifully. Anybody that's watched that sitcom knows exactly how the system works. And uh, we had a case here uh, in Canada that I thought was interesting. The, the, we had this terrible depression in 8081 that uh, Paul Volcker uh, really induced in the United States when he was trying to prove that uh, monetarism, the monetaristic uh, revolution was real and that that was the way to go. Uh, we had a minister of finance who, when our central bank and government, of course the governments are held responsible, unfortunately, <clears throat> allowed our governor, Gerald Bowie, to do the same thing here, and our interest rates went up to 22%. Mm -hmm. This leader of the this opposition finance critic said, this is insane. And I always said, he was right. It was insane. It should never, ever have happened, and it should never have been allowed. Governments shouldn't have allowed it. But it wasn't governments that were running the show. It was the central banks. Unfortunately, that leader of the, the finance critic became our Minister of Finance, like your Secretary of the Treasury, <clears throat> 10 years later, when another governor of the bank was inducing another recession in the early 90s. And would you believe he went out and started apologizing to the people, not apologizing, bragging that they were taking this tough, tough line of, uh, well, he didn't say putting people out of work, but of controlling inflation, of bringing the, the economic system to a grinding halt, that this was all in the interests, the long-term interests of the people. It's called uh, tough love, you know. Yeah, yeah. And here's the same guy saying the exact opposite of what he had said when he was in opposition. And what happens, and you just put your finger on it with the yes minister, 
what happens, he would go into a, I'm sure, I can see the scene. He would a go into a smoke-filled room. Yeah. And the governor of the bank would be there with 22 experts. And they would put on charts and graphs and all of that sort of thing and try and prove to him that black was white. And then they would say to him before he left the room, now, minister, um, we know that we're right and we, we would like you to take our advice. But if for any reason you were decided not to, then you would expect us to let the press know uh, what we were advising you to do, wouldn't you? Speaking of the press, um, the free press is non-existent. Is that correct? That's my experience, yes. And, of course, uh, as I think, I don't know if I know was in my speech in February, I mentioned this, Ellen Hodgson Brown in her uh, book, Web of Debt, which is uh, well worth reading for anybody who wants to know what the the system really is like and who's responsible for it and would like to have a good cry or throw up, whatever, um, says that shortly after the Fed was put into uh, place, the Morgan Bank, in concert with its its uh, cronies, uh, people that made loans to, decided to buy control of the 25 most important U.S. banks. And uh, they, they had a study done. It was They were told that they only needed to have control of 25. So they proceeded to do that. And those 25 then would be... Uh, would have US, to have editorial. U.S. banks or U.S. papers? U.S. bank. Oh, pay, oh excuse me. Did US I say papers? Bank? Yeah. U.S. newspapers. Oh, absolutely. Thank you very much. I've got banking on the brain here today. <laughs> looking out the window of some of our towers. <clears throat> so they, they bought up U.S. newspapers. And consequently, these newspapers would, uh, would go along with what they were doing to the people. And never I, really I want to read a quote that you have in your book from David Rockefeller on this subject. Um, in, uh, I think you said it was, it was in closing up a meeting of the Bilderberger Group. He said, we are grateful to the Washington Post, the New York Times, Time Magazine, and other great publications whose directors have attended our meetings and respected their promises of discretion for almost 40 years. It would have been impossible for us to develop our plan for the world if we had been subjected to the lights of publicity during those years. But the world is more sophisticated and prepared to march toward a world government. The supranational sovereignty of an intellectual elite and world bankers is surely preferable to the national auto-determination practiced in past centuries. That is the truth. But you haven't read it in any of the major papers in the United States, have you? No. Nor are you likely to. And there, there are three subjects that they won't touch. And they're all related to the same gang or cabal or whatever you want to call them. They won't touch monetary theory that we're talking about at the present time. They won't touch the downside of globalization and what it's doing to disparities of income, both within countries and between countries. And they won't touch the extraterrestrial presence and technology because in every single case, they have a monetary interest and they're just somehow they have managed to keep these three absolutely critical issues 
out of the public domain. And uh, it's it's sad, sad, sad. And I um, said in the speech in in February that it's easy to suspect that the Bilderbergers, uh, who include uh, the principal bankers of the world and their the major corporations that they control directly or indirectly, would have uh, similar arrangements with the most important media outlets uh, in the world today. And, of course, one that pops to mind right off the bat is Mr. Murdoch and uh, where he would get the financing to start buying up uh, one media outlet after another uh, in various parts of the world. And oh, uh, oh. it, it uh, all starts to make sense when you look at it, doesn't it? Absolutely. And Fox News being so, so friendly to the elite uh, people who don't like paying taxes and uh, and the people uh, being so difficult on the people who want to treat other human beings as uh, as friends and uh, and equals and people who should be cooperated with uh, it it comes together and it isn't it doesn't have a nice smell frankly so uh, just say the least yeah how did you so, first become aware of our contact with off planet civilizations well, I guess to become aware of it, um, only recently, I think I explained that uh, I got uh, reports of sightings when I was Minister of Defense back in the 1960s, and about 80% of them were, uh, were natural phenomena and could be explained, and about 20%, 15 or 20% could not. They were just unidentified. But I was uh, too involved at that time in the unification of the armed forces, and it in itself was a kind of war which you know took all of my energy and and working time, six and a half or seven days a week, and so it was not a subject that was high on my priority list to say the least. And after the war, uh, I really became after the war after I got out of politics. Uh, active politics, I really started to concentrate more heavily on this monetary problem, which I say is the, the most urgent problem facing the world. And consequently, defense matters, including extraterrestrial uh, matters, were just not front to center in my, uh, my radar scope. So about uh, probably eight years ago, a chap uh, in in Ottawa at the time, uh, a French-speaking Canadian, perfectly bilingual, picked me at random, well, he, not at random, because he says that he did it deliberately. He thought that I would listen uh, with an open mind, which I take as a great compliment. And so he started sending me information on this subject. He was very patient and kept sending me information uh, week after week, month after month, and I told him I didn't have time to read it, which was the truth. Heaven only knows what I was doing, but I was busy. And um, at one stage he sent me a book called The Day After Roswell by Philip Corso, a retired colonel from the United States Intelligence Corps. And uh, I said, that looks interesting. I'll have to maybe take time out 
to read it in one of my rare reading sessions, which are usually my holidays in the summertime. So I put it uh, on my list for the following summer and went to find it and couldn't find it. So I read another book, actually, uh, The Life of Pi. I don't know if you've read that or not, but it's a fascinating uh, fiction. And the following year, I was looking for something else, and there was the day after Roswell staring me in the face. So uh, I said, I'll take that instead. And uh, I started to read it, sitting by the lake in a beautiful spot that I first discovered about 60 years ago and found it very compelling. Incidentally, he had the same chap, uh, Pierre Junot, had uh, persuaded me to watch an ABC special that Peter Jennings, uh, a former Canadian, now deceased, had persuaded ABC to put on. And despite the little bit of debunking at the end, which is uh, par for the course in any mainline media, of uh, all of these policemen and, uh, and pilots and ex-servicemen were telling about their personal experience. And I said, these people aren't lying. They're, they're telling the truth. So this was part of the background, and I got uh, about halfway through the book and said to myself, is it possible that this could be fiction like The Life of Pi was last year and just, uh, you know, cleverly written? And I decided that it, uh, that it wasn't because uh, I recognized the names of the generals and of the air bases and the, of the other things that were mentioned in the book. I, mean, I recognized them from my defense years. So uh, I was sitting by the lake one day and a, my nephew came along and said, what are you reading? I told him. <clears throat> he said, oh, well, I'm a skeptic. I said, well, that's okay. It's a free country. I was sort of exaggerating, but it was freer then than it is now. <laughs> After 10-11, nothing's very free. <clears throat> but uh, so I, I guess that was after 10-11. Sure, take that back. So uh, he went home, and a couple of days later, he phoned me and said, I was talking to the general, told him what you were reading, and he said, every word is true and more. Where can I get a copy of the book? So I told him. Well, interestingly enough, just a week before I had gone on a holiday, I had this invitation to speak at a symposium at the uh, symposium rather at the uh, University of Toronto, and I had no intention of accepting it. As a matter of fact, I was definitely going to say no because ufology is not my field. I knew nothing about it then, and uh, so, but I hadn't I hadn't got around to letting them know officially that I wouldn't be going, and. By the time I got to the end of the book, I was convinced that there were so many big issues in that book, raised by that book that this is something that both the people of the United States and of the world should be talking about, should be debating publicly the implications. And uh, I thought to myself, well, how, how can you debate the implications about a subject that the uh, government of the United States doesn't uh, recognize as existing? So, uh, I was getting married the following week. My late wife had died the previous year, and uh, so I was uh, getting married to the widow of my best friend the following week. And I phoned her and told her I thought I was going to accept the invitation. And she was a little reluctant, and I, 
I've said, well, it will be a one-off, which was probably the biggest untruth I've ever told, but it wasn't <laughs> deliberate because I kind of, I really thought at the time it would be, but uh, I was very wrong on that. So I decided to go public, but first I phoned the general because I had met him at a veneer exhibit a couple of years earlier, and he was given a heads up that I was going to call, and uh, he started the conversation by right off the bat by saying every word is true and more. Wow. And then he spent 20 minutes telling me the, about the more, which included with what he could say without breaking his oath, um, that there had been face-to-face uh, -face meetings between United States officials and extraterrestrials going back some time. So uh, with his assurance to back me up, I then decided that... Uh, that I would go public, and I did. And I've never regretted it, although it's, you know, it has changed my life in the sense that uh, I've had to study this subject uh, at great length since. If I was in kindergarten then, I'd probably be grade five or six now. But people started sending me documents from all over the world. Some of it was just junk, but uh, most of it was really uh, good stuff. Some of it had been highly classified. I received probably 20 books, and I guess I read nearly all of them, if not all of them. And I was briefed by some of the best ufologists in the United States. Uh, won't name them all, but uh, Stephen Greer, for example, medical doctor, favoring uh, disclosure, working at it all his life, and others. He gave me a three-hour briefing, and, uh, and others uh, in the U.S. gave me briefings. So that I've learned a lot about it and became more and more concerned at what might be going on and more and more concerned that there should be full disclosure in the United States and that this is one more area where Congress isn't doing its, uh, its duty because the costs that have been involved in what we call back engineering, the, the uh, technology that Americans found in the, in the wreckage of, uh, of some of the ships, and there have been many of them. They've been working at it for 60 years, but the, the best, uh, some of the best scientists in the United States, the most knowledgeable scientists, aided by some of the Germans that came over after the war, Bernard von Braun, for example, and been going all out for about 60 years, roughly, and... <clears throat> spending hundreds of billions of dollars, some people estimate even as high as uh, a trillion or two, and what they have developed, if it were made public, would boggle the mind, in my opinion. So I but think in fact, but in fact, the, the pace of technology development since the, 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 in the last 60, 70 years has been totally dizzying compared to all recorded history. Absolutely. Um, and uh, the the supposition is that a lot of this alien technology has made its way into the public's the, the the public domain. Well, not the public domain. I mean, that's the problem. It's made its way into the private sector, and it's made some people very very rich. So, just like the Ponzi scheme you were talking about before, the public has picked up the tab, but it was the private interests that have reaped the benefits. Yes, I think this is true. I think this is what General Eisenhower was warning us about. Military-industrial complex. Absolutely, yes. And, and they are part of the cabal. They are working very closely with the bankers. 
and they are part of the industrial military complex. And I would say that they have developed technology that would save the world from overheating, but are deliberately keeping it under wraps because some of the same people that own the banking group are heavily involved in the oil business and they want to cash in their oil chips before they start working on these other technologies. The problem is, to put it bluntly, that they're willing to risk the future of the world in order to accumulate a few hundred billion dollars more money. And that, you know, how can you, what kind of a word can you pick that describes that kind of uh, amorality, I guess is the word, that people would knowingly, because they're not, they're, they're very highly intelligent, cunning people. They know what's involved. Why would they go along with this just for the sake of accumulating more money that they can't possibly spend in their lifetime and, uh, and jeopardize the future of the world's result? And it's shocking, frankly. How long do you think we have before it's irreversible? Well, in my book, I say 10 years. I'm sticking to that. Uh, of course, one of those years has already gone by. It's, it's, um, it's problematical. Dr. James Hansen, who was one of the primary uh, scientists in this area, wonders if we haven't passed the Rubicon, but I think he would agree that if we could, if we could go, if we could get away from what the leaders of the world are saying, that we have 20, 30, 40, or 50 years to reduce uh, carbon emissions, and if we could do it in eight or nine or 10 years, which is physically possible, if we really mobilize the way we would to win a war, if we gave this war to save the world the same priority that we did the Second World War, for example, if we really went at it, I think we could still stop it at a point where the worst of the disasters might be avoided. In other words, we might be able to stop the, uh, the melting of the polar ice cap, and if so, we could probably prevent the... Uh, sea levels from rising 20 feet and uh, inundating uh, coastal cities all over the world and doing tremendous damage. And you can see that, you know, the, the things already starting, these huge storms in the Atlantic are certainly due to the seawaters increasing in temperature. And so you're seeing bigger and bigger storms all the time. And this will continue as that water gets warmer and warmer. And it's going to do more damage to the United States and the, and the eastern coast of Canada in the years ahead. And there's tremendous incentive for ordinary people to do something about it, but the people that are controlling the world are just not on side. And if we don't get them on side or take over from them and just do it, uh, we're going to be in real trouble. Do you think the Internet has created a new window of opportunity to affect global change? It's our only hope. Because at any time in my career before, when I was talking about uh, these subjects, especially the monetary thing, um, the mainline press wouldn't even touch it. They still won't. But with the social networks that have developed, there is a glimmer of hope. Because if we could get uh, everybody who cares about the future of the world, trade unionists, 
ordinary people, uh, the young people especially, the ones that, that are idealistic and would like to create a better world. If we could get them on site in huge numbers and just demand that change be made and set deadlines on how fast it has to be made, then there is a ray of hope. And that is really what I'm, I haven't mentioned the name of my book yet, which is Light at the End of the Tunnel. And there is light at the end of the tunnel, but only if we turn it on. And we've got to turn it on and we've got to turn it on right away. Paul, how can people find out more about your work and educate themselves on these issues? Well, my my book is one place to start. You have a number of books besides Light at the End of the Tunnel. What yes, there are two that are current in the sense uh, Light at the End of the Tunnel, a survival plan for the human species. Uh, for That's general reading, and it has a, a long chapter in it about the extraterrestrial presence and uh, technology. It's called uh, We Are Not Alone in the, Co- in the Cosmos. And then I have one for people who are more interested in economics called The Miracle in Waiting, Economics That Makes Sense. But there, in addition to those books, there are other books by other people. I recommend people go to uh, www.victoryfortheworld.net, and you have to get the .net because there are several victories for the world. That's www.victoryfortheworld.net. And, and what's your website? My website is so convoluted I can't even remember it. It's Paul Hellier, uh, web.net or something like that. Well, we will certainly have a, a link to it on our website, as we have your books on our website as well at NC Review. So I want to thank you so much for being our guest today. I'm th- This time has gone by so quickly. Um, thank you for the work you're doing and for the br- courage that you're you're showing to bring this out into the light. Well, thank you for the opportunity. And I might say at, at victoryfortheworld.net, there are action plans that people can look at. And it's a good starting point, you know, if they want to take some action, that the, there's one there for Canada, one for the U.S., and one for the world. Take a look at some of the ideas and, uh, and see if you don't want to get involved and uh, help save your own world. Well, I commend this to all. So thank you again. Paul Hellyer, author of Light at the End of the Tunnel. Thank you for being on New Consciousness Review. It was my pleasure. And now, on a lighter note, we're going to conclude today's show with the track of the week selected by Scott Johnson from among members of the Positive Music Association. This week, we're featuring a song by Anthony Burbage, appropriately enough called You're Not Alone. After the song, I'll tell you where you can find out more about Anthony's music and more about the PMA. Enjoy the music. If who I really am could never be known Too lost in my head to ever see Then most of the world feels like me But now my heart's become my God 
and I can see I'm not alone I'm not alone I'm not alone In this You're Not Alone by Anthony Burbage from Alberta, Canada. To find out more about Anthony's music, go to www.anthonyburbage.com. That's A-N-T-H-O-N-Y-B-U-R-B-I-D-G-E.com. And to discover more great music or to join the PMA, go to positivemusicassociation.com. Well, that's our show for this week. I hope you'll join us next week on NCR Radio when my guest will be the delightful Ginny Gentry, a former teaching partner of Don Miguel Ruiz. We'll be talking about her book, Dreaming Down Heaven, a fantastic journey into a dreamscape where you and the characters learn the keystones of Toltec wisdom. If you enjoyed our show, why don't you check out our community of readers and authors at ncreview.com. I'm Miriam Knight. 
Thank you for listening. Goodbye. You've been listening to NCR Radio. If you missed any of Miriam's shows, you can find them on demand any day and time on her show page. You can also download podcasts to your iPhone and take these inspiring shows with you wherever and whenever you like. If you have a question or comment for Miriam, you can follow her on Facebook at facebook.com slash ncreview. That's facebook.com slash ncreview. Be sure and join us next week for more passionate and exciting guests on NCR Radio.